What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Robert Wright. He's the president of the Non-Zero Foundation, an author and visiting professor of science and religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Bob's book, The Moral Animal, has changed my thinking more than pretty much any other over the last few years. So, naturally, I wanted to bring him on to discuss whether aliens are real and how we can avoid existential risks. For real, though, expect to learn the role that evolutionary psychology plays in mindfulness practice, why Bob thinks that aliens are probably enlightened, how global coordination can be improved by everyone meditating, whether we're doomed for civilizational collapse, and much more. Bob's been talking to some of the intellectual powerhouses from the last few decades since he's been on the internet, and he's got a wealth of experience. If you're not familiar with him, then I highly recommend that you check out The Moral Animal. It really is a a barn burner of a book and it will make you view the world in a very different sort of way. But today was just a a, a bro chat amongst bros, broing it out, you know, just doing what bros do. So yeah, enjoy this one. In Apple Podcasts related catastrophic news, they have managed to set anyone who already subscribes to Modern Wisdom to automatically have episodes set oldest to newest rather than newest to oldest. So if this is you, or this might have happened on a different show as well, open up the Modern Wisdom show page in your Apple Podcasts app. There's three dots in the top right-hand corner. Press that, press settings, and then go newest to oldest rather than oldest to newest, because for no reason on earth would anyone choose to listen to an episode from three and a half years ago just on a whim. Apple Podcasts there making my life increasingly difficult on a weekly basis. But yes, that is how you fix it if you want to do it. And if you haven't found out that you've hit subscribe, there's a plus button just at the top there. Go and give that a little tap for me. I thank you. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee. So if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product, they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom and MW15 at checkout. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free 
at netsuite.com modern. That's netsuite.com modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free Pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap. Plus, you get your first month for free and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time to talk aliens with Robert Wright. Bob Wright, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. My pleasure. How do you go from working on evolutionary psychology to mindfulness to politics and the end of the world? <laughs> I don't know. They seem closely interconnected in my mind, at least. Uh, well, as for evolutionary psychology and mindfulness, uh, that's actually kind of straightforward, I think. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, my view... Uh, Buddhism, or at least of kind of Buddhist meditative practice and kind of the Buddhist prescription for dealing with the human predicament, is that it's actually a pretty smart response to the problem posed by human nature, to the way we naturally view things, process information, feel things. And human nature is a product of evolution. I mean, evolutionary psychology is about human nature. So... Um, you know, for example, uh, mindfulness can deal with anxiety. And, and, and so the question arises is why is there anxiety to begin with? And the answer seems to be, uh, we're engineered by natural selection to feel it under certain circumstances. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's always good for us. Uh, and mindfulness gives us a way of dealing with anxiety and a number of other kind of problems with being human. Uh, the end of the world stuff, I mean, you're right. My, like my latest obsession is this thing I call the Apocalypse Aversion Project. Um, that's long been a concern of mine. It's certainly related to human nature uh, in, the, in the sense that I think uh, our evolved psychology is uh, uh, in some ways an obstacle to forming the kind of global community I think we need to form to solve the world's problems uh, before they get out of hand. And I'm specifically thinking of what is sometimes called the, the psychology of tribalism. That is those parts of our evolved uh, psychology that can lead us into uh, pointless and counterproductive arguments and hostilities. Uh, these, uh, this psychology tends to involve cognitive biases and and you might say a kind of warped perception of the world. Uh, 
And so, you know, if 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 that indeed, uh, if if this psychology is one thing standing in the way of um, solving the world's problems, then you can see how mindfulness comes back into the picture. It might help us get our minds in a position where we're 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 better equipped to uh, to help the civilization survive. So, avoiding the apocalypse is that a global coordination problem? Is that an individual responsibility? I would say it's both. I mean, you know, the uh, I uh, wrote a book a while ago called Non-Zero. Uh, that was a reference to game theory. A non-zero-sum problem is uh, is a problem where, or a game, a non-zero-sum game is a game where there can be a win-win or a lose-lose outcome. It doesn't have to be a win-lose uh, outcome. And one thing I said near the end of that is that the world, you know, more and more, uh, nations face non-zero-sum challenges. That is to say, uh, problems where they can both come out ahead or many nations can together come out ahead, like avoiding nuclear war. That's a good example. Nuclear weapons create a radically non-zero-sum situation. Nuclear war would be bad for everybody, uh, and avoiding it is good for everybody. And I was just saying there are more and more problems like this. Climate change is one, uh, various environmental problems like overfishing the seas, uh, various arms control problems, uh, bioweapons. Uh, so on the one hand, yes, it's a political challenge that nations uh, could cooperate to address. But on the other hand, uh, there is a, a dimension of individual psychology, because if you ask, well, why aren't nations uh, in some cases getting along well enough to cooperate? Uh, sometimes at least I think the answer is you know, the human psychology, uh, it, it, I wouldn't say it's necessarily kind of the fault of a bunch of individual uh, Americans say that they're not on better terms with various nations. But it is true that that individual psychology makes us susceptible to politicians who want to manipulate us and make us uh, feel more fear of another nation than maybe is warranted and, and things like that. So, yeah, I see I see it as, as both an answer to that question. It's a it's a grassroots problem of individual psychology. And, and I'd like to think of ways to get people more mobilized uh, to address the problem at the individual level with an eye to the, the global goal. Uh, and one one asset in that regard, I mean, one one way to get people interested in this is that I do think that uh, addressing the psychological obstacles to global cooperation uh, is also a way to become a happier person. Uh, I, I think, you know, these are it, it, we're not I, you know, I don't think we're made happy when we are. Um, you know, whipped up into a state of like tribalistic uh, frenzy, you know, and 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 go on social media and find people to hate. I mean, uh, there is a sense in which that must be gratifying or we wouldn't do it, maybe. But uh, I think in the long run, um, you know, we can be happier and more deeply happy if we avoid some of these pitfalls. So what is good for humanity and the civilization wide potential of us as a species is also enjoyable in the process of getting to it for the individual agents as well. I re I really think so. I mean, I, I I really think that that if you just uh you know follow uh mindfulness uh for the purpose of kind of therapy, 
to become a little less anxious, maybe a little more stable, a little more appreciative of the, of the beauty in the world and of other people, I think you will wind up becoming a better citizen. And, uh, you know, without even trying necessarily, I just think uh, it'll be harder for politicians to whip you up into a state of hatred. Uh, you'll be a little less inclined to fall for bait on social media and uh, and contribute to uh, kind of the tribalism problem by sharing things, retweeting things without really examining uh, the consequences of that. So, yeah, I, I do think that's the good news that, uh, you know, self-help and kind of helping the world can coincide. Yeah. I mean, stepping into that mindfulness gap, if you've spent a bit of time doing meditation, one of the coolest things is observing an emotion arise inside of you. And sometimes they're negative emotions, right? And sometimes they're triggered by some in idiot on the other side of the internet. And sometimes the idiot is you for watching something that you know that you shouldn't have watched or reading something you know <laughs> you shouldn't have read. Um, but yeah, it's it's everything can be a meditative exercise in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I encourage people, you know, people think of, mindfulness some people do as as you know something that uh happens during meditation or at least that you have to meditate uh rigorously to cultivate and i do encourage people to try meditation um and to keep meditating but you can also just try to be mindful even if you've never meditated uh in various ways uh, you can, for example, if you're feeling sad and would rather not feel sad, um, uh, or at least would not rather not suffer from sadness, uh, just sit down, close your eyes and examine the feeling. Just ask yourself, like, where exactly in my head and body is the feeling of sadness? And just examine the contours. And you'll probably find that some of the suffering has gone out of it in, in the process of your examining it. And I would also encourage people to experiment on social media, even if they've never meditated. Just next time you, you're, you're about to retweet something or about to reply to somebody who annoys you or about to do anything on social media, just like stop and close your eyes and examine the feeling you're feeling that is motivating you to do that. You know, it, we do things because of feelings. Feelings are the great motivators. Thoughts are involved in the process. But generally speaking, when we, when we are motivated to do something there is a feeling however subtle driving us to do that and um i'd encourage people yeah on social media just at any point in life just stop close your eyes examine the feeling it's just kind of interesting uh whatever feeling good bad uh whatever it's just good practice and sometimes it can keep you out of trouble one of the things i've been thinking about a lot recently is whether or not another alien civilization could be any more emotional than we are or quick to emotion. And one yeah. of the things that I've come to believe is they couldn't be. Because if you were to turn up our emotionality by 10 or 20%, I think that right. coordination would be so difficult that you wouldn't actually be able to achieve very much. So given the fact that we're trying to avert an apocalypse, we're hopefully going to fulfill our civilizational potential and become multi-planetary, spacefaring, you know, type three Kardashev civilizations, is there a potential that our emotional set point is a glass ceiling, which it's a Sisyphean task to try and get past with regards to mindfulness? You would need everybody to be dedicating 10,000 hours of their life simply to be able to get to the point where we could coordinate sufficiently well 
to reach our potential? Are we too emotional to be the civilization that we want to be? Well, it's a great opportunity to plug my newsletter, uh, the non-zero newsletter, because the, the issue I sent out last night... Link in show notes below. Link in show notes below. The issue I sent out last night, uh, I think this one went out only to only to paid subscribers, but uh, the uh, was about UFOs. And, and, and uh, because, you know, they've gotten a lot of attention lately. The U.S. government's going to publish its big report on UFOs within a few weeks, apparently. And there was a big 16 minutes on them. And... I made the argument that uh, you shouldn't worry uh, that they may be extraterrestrial. I mean, I have no idea if they are or not. I'm, I'm not like a UFO guy, but, uh, but uh, you shouldn't worry that, oh, no, maybe they're extraterrestrials. Uh, in fact, in a certain sense, you should hope that they are. And, and the, the reasoning I gave is, 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 I think, pretty aligned, if I understand you correctly, with what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I said... Uh, well, this this could use a little background. Maybe you you may have heard of the Fermi paradox, the idea that you know, wait a second. In principle, there are so many planets out there that could have life. If you ask, just in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of a jillion galaxies, how many planets are there that seem to be in the Goldilocks zone? That is neither too hot nor too cold for life. The current estimate is like 20 billion or something, okay, or more, probably more. And, and so if you assume that, well, on some of, you know, the, so probably a lot of them, you know, fair number of those probably have water. And so if, if life is the kind of thing that arises when circumstances are conducive, given long enough, and by the way, a lot of these planets are way older than ours, so there's been a lot of time. If you assume that life kind of tends to start and that evolution has a decent chance, at least, of producing intelligent life and that intelligent life tends to launch technological evolution, you know, pretty soon you find yourself asking, well, why haven't we been contacted by aliens? Because you'd think there would be some out there that are like millennia ahead of us in terms of technological evolution. And so challenging as it is to communicate from another solar system uh, or even travel from another solar system. You'd think there would be some that would solve the problem and so on. So, so that's the Fermi paradox. And, you know, if, if there are so many opportunities uh, for an advanced civilization to develop in our galaxy and, and the universe more broadly, why haven't we heard from them? That's the paradox. And one answer you get is, well, maybe when uh, civilizations get to our level, that is, they have the technology that they could use to bind themselves into a into a into a planetary community, solve any problems they need to solve, or they could blow the whole thing up. Maybe they blow the whole thing up. That's a that's a common answer to the question uh, posed by the Fermi paradox. And so I said two things. First of all, uh, you might hope that there are extraterrestrials showing up just so that you'll know, like, it's doable. I mean... They've got uh, past the, the great filter, therefore, got, yeah, so can it's possible us. to yeah. get past this this so-called, uh, this one variant of the so-called great filter. The other, the other thing I said is, I would guess that if they did get past the great filter, they're probably morally enlightened enough that they're not going to just, like, torture us or eat us, right? I mean, like, like uh, because, you know... Again, my view is that if planet Earth is going to get past uh, the current crossroads, then people broadly are going to have to really make, in a certain sense, more 
moral progress. They're going to have to overcome some of their uh, tendency to be just gr gratuitously and harshly judgmental of other people and kind of come up with reasons to hate other groups and stuff. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I think um, I, I think if there's a if there's a civilization that's gotten beyond this threshold that we are maybe stuck at uh, and surmounted the challenge. Uh, I would suspect that they're probably, um, you know, closer to moral enlightenment than we are and not inclined to gratuitously inflict uh, suffering on other sentient beings. That would be my guess. Well, that actually <laughs> rolls forward from my proposal. My proposal is that most civilizations couldn't be more emotional than us because they would struggle with global coordination. If right. I'm saying that I think we're somewhere near the ceiling of that. You have to presume that, well, I don't know if less emotionality would be akin to more enlightenment. I'm not really too sure about that. I don't know how those two map onto each other, but they, they shouldn't be at least more tribal than us or else how the right. fuck have they managed to colonize the galaxy and get the, or get over here at the very right. least. They would have to be less tribal, I think. I mean, you can imagine scenarios where they... They uh, they they consolidate planetary order without becoming less tribal. It seems to me unlikely. Or totalitarianism, perhaps, or some sort of yeah, tech yeah, yeah. technocracy overlord. That, yeah. that tends to be an unstable thing. The um, I, I think I, I mean, as for whether you're talking about kind of level of emotionality, uh, in a certain sense, I would agree. I mean, I I would I would say when you become mindful. Yes, there's a sense in which you're becoming less emotional, but you know, people, mindfulness practitioners and teachers want to be very careful with the language here. It's not like your feelings are going away. It's that you are less slavishly obedient to Don't them. Don't identify with them. Right. You, 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 you're, you're better at not identifying with them when it's not in your interest to do that. And um, so I, I think... If, yeah, you presumed yeah, I, that the, would, if you presumed that the emotionality being higher made not identifying with them more difficult, though, that should end up a, yeah, a yeah. similar yeah, yeah. sort of Yeah, you could imagine just subduing the emotions uh, and, and that having somewhat the same effect. I'm, I'm just saying it's not exactly... I, think I understand. It's not exactly the same as uh, mindfulness. Um, you know... It's uh, of course the, the the you know the, the little thing I just said about the Fermi paradox and my take on it. There are all kinds of assumptions underlying my analysis, and and some of them are are hard to to kind of get a grip on. Um, like you know, well, would any species and it would any technologically advanced species be prone to tribalism in the first place? In other words, would that be something it had to overcome? I think you could argue th th there are reasons to think maybe so, given given the way natural selection works. I think there are reasons to think maybe so, but but I would just acknowledge that that's an example of something I'm kind of assuming without really examining. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm not sure. Obviously, the next couple of months are potentially going to be some of the most revelatory in human history, depending on what gets released from these files. But to me, it seems unlikely that they're living beings. Uh, unless they've got some underwater station, perhaps. But what would make most sense would probably be... I mean, what do you do when you've got, in the Antarctic, 
and you're just doing observations, observation posts tend to have some sort of technological component that's able to do the observation on your behalf. You have cameras, you have sensors, you have so on and so forth. You know, why not just make a base down at the bottom of the, the seabed? It's far less likely the fish aren't going to bother you. Perhaps you're able to capture some sort of geothermal energy that can keep you ticking over or based on what these tic-tac videos are showing it looks like you probably don't even need that you can just bend space time around you so who needs energy um yeah it's an interesting one it's it's going to be a a fascinating period but i mean god this kind of if it's not something from earth there's so many fields that get upended a little bit yeah it would be pretty freaky uh i i mean that you know the report has been leaked to the New York Times, or at least selectively. I, the, the officials who leaked it wanted to get some messages out. And, wh- and what, what the New York Times said is they don't find strong evidence that these are extraterrestrials. On the other hand, they are puzzled uh, by the properties that some of these apparent, if these are indeed flying objects, uh, th- they are... Uh, they seem to possess capabilities that we don't have. And, uh, you know, I I honestly don't know. I'll I'll be curious to look at the report itself. But, uh, you know, as for the question you ask, I mean, there's a couple of things. First of all, you might say, well, given the fact that a civilization would presumably develop the capacity to communicate with us from a distance before it would develop the capacity to actually get here, which isn't an easy thing to do from like 10,000 light years away. Um, then, uh, although some, some solar systems are much closer than that, uh, but uh, uh, wouldn't you expect that that would be the first sign that, that you'd, you'd be getting these radio waves? That's one question. You know, the other question, maybe more closely related to the one you asked, is, uh, you know, these, there's kind of a couple of, of pretty interesting uh, sightings that I'm aware of. The, the most interesting seem to be the, on the one hand, the eyewitness testimony of this David Fravor guy, the pilot off of San Diego, because there were three eyewitnesses in two planes, right? I mean, there was uh, uh, one of his, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, there was a, a woman who was a fi- who was flying the plane above him, and she, so she watched what he did from a from a distance. He, meanwhile, went down and engaged what he says was a, an aircraft. And so and you've got two people in each plane. And, and for the first time I'm aware of, we actually heard from this woman on 60 Minutes the other day. So, so that seems to be intrinsically interesting when you listen to their uh, testimony. Um, and there are kind of remote kinds of corroboration of that. I mean, there was a, they were originally dispatched there by a, uh, a cruiser. Uh, I think it was a cruiser. Navy ship uh, that uh, had seen these things on its radar that wanted to investigate. And then, uh, but they did not get anything on camera from their plane during that sighting. A plane came later that day. I think a plane went out and saw something that might be something. And that's the, the FLIR video, uh, uh, you know, infrared video. The, the other interesting sighting is, is apparently, apparently these things just persisted for months in like uh, the one I just described is 2004. These other ones were like I think around 2014, and uh, they were off the east coast of the United States. And um, uh, there, there, those are the videos where it's like people are going, "Whoa!" You know, and uh, the uh, th- those are two other videos. And um, 
So I've asked myself, looking at those, like, okay, so suppose these are extraterrestrials. I've asked myself the question you've asked, like, well, first of all, why are they exposing themselves like this? And I guess one thought could be, like, they didn't realize they were that visible because the Navy never released the videos, you know. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, but it is it is puzzling. And it may be reason uh, to think there's less here than meets the eye. I don't know. But um, I don't, uh, I mean, maybe that's a better answer to the San Diego one because there was only one sighting. That, 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 that craft seemed to have the ability to maybe even submerge in the, in the ocean uh, at a minimum, hover above it. Uh, and, uh, and that's the only sighting of that kind. So maybe that's a case where like, okay, it got seen once and then it's like, then they change their program, right? Like, I don't know. It, it's, it's fun to speculate about this stuff, but I don't know. Have you, have you gotten very deeply into this stuff? I've watched the Joe Rogan episodes with Commander David Fravor and right. I've seen a bunch of other videos on the internet. And I mean, Joe's balls deep in this stuff. So he's a, actually a pretty good sort yeah. of one-stop shop in terms of a resource for it. But yeah, you're right. It's a very unceremonial. If this is Aliens... It's like the least ceremonial way that you'd know no landing on the White House lawn, just right. dicking about in the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And you would think if they're advanced enough to get here, I mean, we, we're talking about advanced technology. If they could get here from another solar system, you, you would think you would think that it wouldn't take them terribly long to decode our communication and be able to communicate with us. And at that point, like, why wouldn't they? I guess if they think of us as this interesting experiment, um, they just want to watch. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I, you know, I've walked, watched debunking videos and I, and I am totally agnostic on the question of whether there's any, anything here at all. I just, I just don't know. It's just that it's fun to speculate. Uh, and when you hear some of these people like Fravor and that other pilot talk together, you think, mm, pretty weird. And it's so it's compelling because you have these multiple viewpoints, Mark. Yeah, it's an interesting one, man. Going back to what you were talking about at the beginning, which is this relationship between evolutionary psychology and mindfulness or Buddhism. Is How much of a place is there for an evolutionary psychology insight from the individual if they are a mindfulness practitioner or just if they want to live a peaceful life? Because I have my biases with regards to this particular worldview but what are your thoughts you mean you mean the worldview of evolutionary psychology or the fact that in my opinion mindfulness without an insight into evolutionary psychology at least a shallow one and a little bit of an understanding of how cognitive biases work i don't think that you're getting the full picture because for me i want to ask the question why right why is it like that why does this affect me in this way? And that's when you need the adaptive explanation. Right. Um, you know, obviously, uh, for centuries and centuries and centuries, uh, meditators have gotten something out of meditation, including mindfulness meditation, um, without having evolutionary psychology, since it, you know we've only known about natural selection for uh, about a century and a half. Um, the uh, so so it can have benefits and and it can have profound ones. There there are people who uh, I'm sure have gotten to great great depths, greater depths than I've gotten to, uh, 
who lived centuries ago uh, and got there via mindfulness meditation. Um, at the same time, I have found since writing my book about uh, Buddhism, why Buddhism is true, that a, a number of people respond uh, by saying it is helpful to their practice to understand where these feelings come from in the first place, like why they're here. Why do humans uh, have anxiety? Why, why, uh, to to look at a more generic problem that's that's confronted head on by Buddhism, why are we so hard to satisfy? Why is it that you know you have that one donut, you wait a while, you want another one? You know, it's like whatever it is that next promotion. The, the 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 latest material acquisition, your new gimmick that brings you gratification for a few days, sex, whatever, gratification tends to be fleeting. And this is, you know, this is just the fundamental problem that Buddhism uh, confronted from the get-go. Uh, the fact that we seem to be driven by these thirsts, they, they uh, can never be satisfied for very long. In fact, you know, um, the, uh, the term dukkha, you know, the, the famous phrase, life is suffering, which actually the Buddha never quite exactly said in so many words. But anyway, he did say life is uh, pretty full of suffering. Uh, and, and the word that's translated as suffering is dukkha. And some people think you could also translate that as unsatisfactoriness, that, or that in any event, it has it would have had that connotation in, in the Buddha's day that the problem with life is that we keep wanting more, right? We, we, there's always this restless feeling uh, of more. And I don't plan to ever uh, completely prevail over that. I don't even really want to. I mean, you know, it, it's not... You need a motivating a, force, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not a horrible affliction in itself, but it really does uh, get out of control more often than I'd like. And, you know, you're just, you're, you're better off. Uh, I mean, even, you know, if you have this motivator of wanting more in, just in the sense of more influence, I mean, say you're in like kind of my line of work or yours, you're a podcaster, you're a writer, whatever, you would like to have more influence on people. You like to think that you're trying to influence them in a positive way. Uh, and you'd like to do more of that. Okay, so fine. Um, but even uh, that goal, I think you can pursue more effectively if in a lot of realms, you'll let go of the desire for more. I, I mean, just to, just to take uh, a very simple example, like uh, I have, you know, uh, what I think it's fair to call attention deficit disorder. I have a lot of t trouble focusing. And if you examine what's going on there in a kind of a mindful way, you realize that it's a quest for pleasure, right? It's like, I'm, I'm trying to write an email or write something. I get a little stuck. I don't know what to write next. And that causes an unpleasant feeling. It's like, a, uh, I don't know what to do. And then you think like, wouldn't it be fun to research like, your next smartphone purchase or something. <laughs> yeah, that would be a lot more fun. I enjoy doing that. And that's just a click away, right? And and when I examine what keeps me from being able to focus on things, it is this constant desire to be 
to get a little more pleasure and, and have a little less discomfort. And that leads you to not confront things that need confronting. And if you can discipline yourself, this isn't easy, but if you can get yourself, when you feel that desire to like uh, go uh, open another tab or go downstairs and watch TV, watch sports or something, uh, if you can just close your eyes and examine the feeling that's making you want to do that, uh, you know, you can you can get better at, uh, well, some people would complain if I say resisting it, uh, some mindfulness aficionados, but in any event, not being uh, kind of uh, governed by it. Um, so I, I'm not I'm not I'm not, you know, looking for an all out assault on our quest for pleasure or achievement or accomplishment or anything. Uh, I'm I'm just at least in my own case trying to pursue my goals more effectively uh, in a way. And as it happens, I think pursuing them more effectively makes you happier as well. I think this point about the Duca bias uh, comes to one of the most central questions that most people in the 21st century are asking, because we are objective metrics of success. We are a meritocracy, materialist, reductionist, utilitarian, and when you combine all of that together with the status hierarchies that are built in and where am I and what do I want next and hedonic treadmill, all this sort of stuff, the inevitable unsatisfactoriness of most of the experiences in life can cause you to continue to chase things in a desperate attempt to try and fill that hole coming from a scarcity mindset that you're running away from insufficiency as opposed to running toward abundance. Mm -hmm. And that is... Uh, the number of conversations that I've had about that map of experience is, is huge because for most people, for many people, especially with social media now, which is an objective, quantifiable metric of your social status, it might be a rough yeah. or a shitty one, but um, yeah. with all of this combined and weaponized and utilized and monetized, it's a difficult situation to be in, to be a happy, peaceful, balanced human. Yeah. Now, that's a good example of, I think, how, how evolutionary psychology figures into this. I mean, you know, the quest for esteem, the quest to be respected is the most natural thing in the world for human beings. We are designed by natural selection to want people to think highly of us. But we weren't designed to live in this environment where, uh, you know, we are every day uh, seeing how uh, how much affirmation we're getting from all of these people who don't actually even know us. Right. I mean, you know, you you it's like it, it is genuinely painful to tweet something that leads a bunch of people to judge you negatively. And, and they're like in no position to judge you. You know, it's crazy when you think about it. And yet, uh, and yet here we are. And it's, a, it's another case where if you can just pause and examine the, the actual feeling of pain, like this is hurting me, just reflect on the feeling. I think the feeling will be a little less uh, painful. And but at the same time, the de the the desire, the the uh, you know, when you tweet something and you're like, ah, let's check every five seconds to see how many likes I have or retweets. Uh, 
you know, that feeling too, I think warrants um, reflecting on because it can become pathological. It's, it's, and, 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 you know, this is to get back to psychology of tribalism. This is a big problem for our society at large because Twitter, you know, social media tends to reward tribalistic behavior. The easiest way in the world to build up your Twitter following is to find a, a, a pretty big group, Trump supporters, Trump haters, whatever, and just reinforce their prejudices, right? Just like, oh, like whoever it was, this genius thing the other day, claiming that Trump had his pants on backwards, which turned out not to be true. But, <laughs> I didn't but somebody had, you know, whoever, whoever the person is who came up with that picture, <laughs> seeming to show that, hey, my hat's off to you. You really know how to play the Twitter game, man. Just come up with total bullshit that is deeply gratifying to everyone who hates Donald Trump. And there's a lot of those and get it out there, you know. And and then, of course, the effect of that is for Trump supporters to say, see, they do nothing but lie about us. Right. The, the, the Trump, the Trump haters do nothing but lie about us and about Trump. That's all the more reason not to t trust the media. So if the media tells you the election wasn't stolen, don't believe them. And, and it's just, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a really deep problem. I mean, I, I, I think. Somebody needs to find a way to make it be considered cool to not be an asshole on Twitter. <laughs> you know, like, well, the problem like, is no, no one knows, no one notices you when you're being silent, right? Reasonable right, people right. very rarely make the headlines. No one says, look at this incredibly well-balanced, nuanced, centrist point that was just made here. No one gives a shit. And also a point that I realized about Sam Harris toward the back end of last year, by being in the middle, you can guarantee disagreement from both sides. At least when you're out on the extremes, you get agreement from one of them. But by sitting in the uh -huh. middle... And the stupid thing is that your view on gun control should in no way be influenced by your view on abortion or your view on the federal tax level or your view on immigration or anything else. But because of the way that people have become tribalized and because of how politics works, that you tend to have this two-party system, at least in America, you get that. So people get bunched together right. in groups. But very, there's no reason. If I know one of your views and from it I can accurately predict everything else that you believe, I can probably safely assume that you're not a serious thinker. Right. But, but what, the, what political polarization does is make it more and more true that that's the case. Because people choose their policy preferences by whatever the other side doesn't like. I mean, a, a, kind, a, a, a version of this kind of is the way so many Democrats in America are suddenly these anti-Russia cold warriors. It used to be kind of reversed, you know. And then the, the idea developed that Russia had helped Trump in the election. And I, I personally think it turned out to be a little a little less there than met the eye. I mean, the, the Mueller gate investigation didn't really turn up all that much. I mean, Russia did try to intervene and, and help him where they could. And actually, the email hack, I think, was genuinely consequential. But the idea floating around in the resistance for a while was like, oh, he's there. He's there. Uh, you know, their Mancurian candidate that he did a deal with them and and he's in bed with Putin and, and blah, blah, blah. And that that led all these Democrats to suddenly uh, be like the cold warriors that Republicans used to be. 
and and there was just a complete flip on that and and then republicans started saying hey russia what's so bad with russia it's uh it's it's not a rational uh process political polarization well look at the positions on free speech now that the people who are calling yeah. for restrictions in free speech traditionally would have been the ones that were calling for free speech absolutism right uh no that's that's absolutely true the uh you know when uh, when trump is thought to be the problem then a lot of liberals are are in favor of uh him and his uh people like him being shut down by social media companies uh, and i gotta say life is a lot easier without him on twitter <laughs> but but you know i would have been very interested to see if we could have mustered the discipline. I think if he hadn't been kicked off Twitter, there would have been a movement. I certainly would have supported it. I think you would have heard, it would have made some noise to just ignore him, to just like start, he's no longer president, don't do him the favor of retweeting anything he does, just ignore him. I would have been curious to see if we could muster that much uh, self-discipline. I'm, I'm sure it wouldn't have been a complete success, but. I, I I'd like to know, and and I guess we won't know because I think he's banned uh, from Twitter for more two or less years good. on Facebook. I think it just came it's out. at least it's at least January twenty twenty three on Facebook. But I think Twitter sounds like they have no plans to ever reinstate him. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, the news is a lot more boring without him being around. Hey, I'm okay with boring news. Yeah, no, I, I'm not. I mean, I'm very ambivalent about. Uh, the social media companies uh, shutting him down. And, and in general, I mean, like, well, just they're, uh, you know, I, I don't think they're doing a great job of, of handling uh, the challenge. And, and I think they should err on the side of openness and have clearer rules. Uh, but it's a weird, I, I, I kind of feel their pain. I mean, if I were running Twitter or Facebook and saw how, you know, untrue and dangerous things can spread uh, rapidly, and 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 saw that we had a president who you know was inclined to say things that weren't exactly thoroughly corroborated, uh, and get them spread widely. I I I, I understand their temptation to do something. It's a tough. It's not easy. I think the problem that people have is that it appears like the rules are being applied discriminately. Right between the the picking particular actors or particular viewpoints or particular political positions, uh, and both sides of the aisle consider it to be their side, which is the one that's being maligned. Right, it's right. the if you have someone that is in their left echo chamber, they will only be served people on the left who have been cancelled or had their channels removed, and everyone's up in arms about it. But if you're on the right hand side of the aisle, you're you don't see that at all. You just see your side of people that right. have been cancelled and have been removed. Yeah, I mean, here's another thing. Do you remember when the first big Facebook uh, Congress, was it in front of Congress, where he had to give a statement, where Zuckerberg had to give a statement, and there was that photo of him and everyone accused him of being an android? Remember this? It was maybe about three or four years ago. And he is an amazing-looking guy, i got to say. He's but, a very uh, androidy-looking human. Um. But think about that. Or look at Jack Dorsey now. I mean, Jack Dorsey just looks like a man that's done far too many psychedelics, which very well may be the truth. But these are people, especially Zuck, right? He was just a kid that started a thing. 
And now he's strapped to this nuclear warhead rocket going at a million miles an hour. And you just look at him and you think you just wanted, you, you just wanted to do like a cool thing on the internet. And as people progress on, we go through life, we leave our old epochs behind, we find our new ones. But God, I, I don't know. I, I really do wonder in his darker moments or his more mindful moments, whether he thinks, God, would life have just been easier if I'd started a Shopify store or something and was just doing e-com? Yeah, I, I don't have a very clear sense for what the answer to that is because he's so hard to figure. I think... It's because he's an android, it, it, Bob. Well, honestly, I mean... I, no, I don't think he's an android, but, <laughs> but I mean, he, he does seem not uh, constrained by certain basic human feelings. The way, so, I mean, like, you know, when he went to... Uh, like, when he went to Harvard, you know, he started that site. Hot, it was a hot or not site. You know, the one where... Uh, so they Comparing show two pictures of, people, of yeah. people who I guess were in the freshman book or whatever at Harvard and people would vote on how attractive they were. Now, if I had that idea, I'd think, Ugh. like, I don't want to cause pain to these people who are going to get downvoted. It's like, this isn't cool. He's, he doesn't have feelings like that. And he has treated Facebook that way. He's just like, I do think he kind of sees us as laboratory rats. I mean, they've literally done experiments. Uh, on, you know, where they, uh, I forget the details, but where they just, uh, they're like, let's throw this out here, uh, and, uh, and see how people respond. And I forget, I forget the details, but there are some really controversial examples of that. Um, so I don't know, I don't want to get off on Mark Zuckerberg, but, uh, I'm trying to think, are there any of these companies that are in the hands of people who seem like deeply conscientious? Hard to say. Uh, but mm. there is a lot of power in, in a small number of hands now because of the way these companies, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, just blow up and dominate just by virtue of their internal dynamics. You don't, you don't have to be a ruthless monopolist to make that happen, that just the positive network externalities make these platforms dominant. And then you're right. Suddenly you're running a dominant platform. <laughs> the Matthew principle is a hell of a drug, man. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, just finishing off that Duca bias thing that we were talking about. So there's another side of the coin, I think, that when people achieve something that they thought was going to give them pleasure, uh, my favorite example is talking about a holiday. So you're planning a holiday for ages. You're all excited. You know the restaurant. You know the table. You might even have looked at the menu and know what you're going to order. And then you sit down, but then you notice that there's sand between your toes and maybe it should have been iced instead of shaken. And oh, mm -hmm. I wish I'd gone for medium well instead of medium rare. Um, that is a feature, not a bug, right? That's that's part of the source code. It's inbuilt into the substrate of our existence that everything's just going to be a little bit more tarnished than you probably thought. Or if it isn't, it's going to be briefer. Um, what practices have you found to allow yourself to be able to relish those sort of good moments a little bit more? Well, first of all, as for the feature bug thing, before I answer your actual question, I mean, that that I think is interesting to delve into a little, because I think you're right that the, uh, the constant evaluation of these things, like, couldn't this be a little bit better? It's not quite as good as I had expected. Uh, that is, it is built in. And the reason it's built in is because it's a feature by the lights of natural selection. Okay, that that is to say that apparently in our species, uh, and I think this would be true of a lot of species, but 
animals uh, that had that uh, did a better job of getting uh, their genes into the next generation uh, than other animals. But that doesn't mean it was ever a feature in terms of uh, the happiness of the individuals. Because natural selection doesn't care about our happiness to begin with. So it could be a feature from natural selection's point of view and a bug from the point of view of, of human psychology and human happiness from the beginning. And then there's the second sense in which things can become bugs. And, and that's by virtue of how different the environment we're in is from uh, the environment we were designed for. So for example, um, the desire to feel a little better. Well, in an environment where there's cocaine, that can become a huge bug, right? You know, and 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 cocaine wasn't part of the natural environment, so so it wasn't it wasn't a bug of that kind um, in uh, in the environment of our evolution. So anyway, that's just a little. Just wanted to be clear on on kind of the feature bug thing. I mean, as for so you're asking now about like uh, the. Uh, <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm first of all a little blessed. Well, there are senses in which I'm very fuzz, fussy and senses in which I'm not. And I'm not like a foodie. You know, it's like my wife's family, they're foodies. And and they're they're, you know, so we'll we'll be eating and they'll be commenting on whether something is, you know, above or below their expectations. And I'm like, oh, grub, good. Put in mouth, chew swallow go do something else uh fine um so but uh but but i definitely uh ha have the problem at some level and certainly what, one way to what, get it what do you have a weakness for if it's not food what are some of the things where your duca bias rears its head oh well I mean, first of all, I'm very fussy about like writing and stuff that can be productive. Uh, like, couldn't this be a little better? Couldn't this sentence be a little better? That can make your writing better. Um, I, uh, but I'm just, I mean, this will seem at odds with what I just said. I'm very aware of, uh, I, I'm very self-conscious in the sense of being aware of how, how I'm feeling at the time. And, and I think that's, uh, well, I mean, the, 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 the worst form of that is, is something I already alluded to. It's just making it hard to concentrate because I do find myself thinking, uh, um, you know, wouldn't I feel better if I had a little more coffee or a little more chocolate or something of this? I mean, that may seem at odds with what I just said about food, but my point is I'm not like a connoisseur. It's like, I, I, it's like what I naturally do is just think about the psychological effect of food. So like I'm aware that uh, carbohydrates will sedate me. So I will I will I will eat them for that purpose, you know, um, and I could probably stand to be a little less conscious at that level of how everything is is influencing me. Um, but uh I don't know. I mean, I mean, things I'm things that I find temptations. I find it very easy to succumb to are like watching sports on TV. That's not a horrible thing, but carried too far can lead you to never accomplish anything again for the rest of your life. Uh, 
what um I don't know. I I you so know So just think about what about reveling in things, end states, events, achievements, just allowing those to linger a little bit longer. It feels like that's something that I think a lot of people wish. The the holiday that they're planning to go on, the new house that they're planning to buy, even someone that's taken the hedonic treadmill red pill and knows that, look, this isn't going to be an inherent source of happiness, but it's still something Mm -hmm. that I can be proud of in what it symbolically represents, that I have worked for this, that it is a new stage, a new level that I have reached within my life, whatever it might be. Um, Yeah, just not looking for that next thing. It seems like that balance, again, delivered by culture, delivered by evolutionary psychology, both kind of colliding and combining and uh, increasing, um, that just seems to be one of the challenges that people have. And I think one of the reasons they get into mindfulness, to avoid negative emotions and to further allow themselves to enjoy positive ones. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the the trick is partly not to have too much of a grasping kind of attitude toward the feeling of success. Uh, I don't know. I sometimes wonder, you know, these, uh, like right now I'm wondering, like, how is Phil Mickelson feeling? Like, I don't know if you follow golf, but he just became the, uh, oldest person ever to win a major golf tournament. He, uh, he was a month away from 51. This was a couple of weeks ago and he had been working just incredibly hard to get back in the, in the game, even though he's passed way past his prime. And, uh, I wondered how long does the thrill uh, last and, and, and how, you know, uh, for him. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's certainly true that a lot of people who have accomplished great things are not very happy precisely because the feeling always evaporates and, 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 and that's what keeps them motivated. Uh, but I know in my case, I am confident that uh, I could, by becoming more mindful, and I think I've already made some progress in that regard, um, actually become more productive. Uh, You know, because, uh, you know, I I think there is some level of uh, mindfulness you could get to where you were, uh, you know, you were less ambitious. That, That can happen. You know, people, it's a common question. People say, uh, if I, what if I meditate so much that, um, I just no longer have the desire to succeed or whatever. Uh, and I say, well, first of all, by definition, you'll probably be happy. That's why, you know, you'll, you'll let go of it, but also it's almost certainly not going to happen. I mean, uh, it, it, I think for most of us, uh, you know, just getting, uh, to, a to a mindful enough to, pursue the goals we most care about more effectively is enough of a, a challenge. And the chances of getting so far beyond that point that we just sit around and meditate all day is pretty slim. It's the same argument that I give to girls who are worried that lifting weights in the gym is going to make them too muscly. That like, do you know how long and how hard I've worked in the gym in a desperate attempt to become muscly? And you're concerned that by lifting the sixes instead of the fours, that you're right. going to walk out of there jacked out of your mind. So this isn't going to happen. Overshooting with things like this, especially where people dedicate a lot of time to it, it's just so unlikely. And there's so much work to be done to get to that point that 
It's not as if it's going to come no. out of nowhere. You're not just going to yeah. wake up one day and your default mode network's just completely right. shut off or you've got 23-inch arms. Right. It's like, get back to me if this becomes a problem. Like, if, if you're just <laughs> sitting around in a state of bliss all day, I'll have two questions. Is it really a problem if you're in a state of bliss all day, A? And B, did this really happen? Because I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but uh, so you're, you're, like a, you're like a serious fitness guy, right? I train a lot, yes. And and is this uh do you have trouble staying motivated? Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like what, weightlifting and what is it? It's a uh, combination. So sometimes it's CrossFit, sometimes it's bodybuilding. Um the reason that motivation sometimes ebbs and flows is that one training methodology often gets boring. But you can easily change that up going to Muay Thai, so I went out to Thailand and I'm going to go to more functional fitness or I'm going to start start doing yoga for a while and now I'm back into bodybuilding again and so on and so forth. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, I kind of feel that way about different meditation techniques. Sometimes, you know, you start seeming to get diminishing returns and there are different things you can try, different techniques. I've really found um, that recently. I was with uh, Shinzen Young's Five Ways to Know Yourself. So I was following yeah. that for the longest time. And... um it just after a while it just felt like banging your head off a wall and mm -hmm. i can't remember where i heard it someone used this analogy they said don't expect the boat that carried you across the river to take you across land to the next river mm -hmm. and that was a really nice insight like look you've, you've made some gains leave it there right let's look forward what can there be what have been some of the major pivots that you've made that have helped your mindfulness practice uh, well, you know, it goes up and down. Um, a thing I'm trying now, uh, because I have hit, uh, you know, kind of a, a wall, um, is just meditating a second time a day. Um, the, uh, you know, because I, I do meditate every morning and that's, that's good. Uh, but you know, I, later in the day, you'll have a there's there's uh, there's different stuff to meditate on. Like you you may by by five p.m. Um, your mind is just in a different place. There, there's probably a little more restlessness, uh, some aggravations, and uh, what I've just started doing like yesterday is realizing that look, as long as you're wearing a fitness watch, you can just set it to go off every day at 6.30 p.m. And uh, it's a reminder to meditate because all other uh, reminders in my life don't work because like, the, you know, the, 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 because my appointment calendar always signals 15 minutes before an appointment, you just, you just get in the habit of dismissing that without even thinking about it. So I finally had this epiphany yesterday, like set your watch and you'll only get one alarm. You know, I, I'll meditate in the morning and then, so uh, yesterday was the first day of doing that. I like it. <laughs> You're definitely right in saying that morning is, I wouldn't say easy mode, but it's less hard mode than later on in the, in the day. Yeah. If you're committing yourself to, I have to meditate every day and you miss your morning session, the anxiety that you know, it's going to be like, I'm going to sit down for 15 minutes and I'm going to have that song that I heard in the car on the way to the gym in my yeah. head and that conversation I've just had with my business partner and so on and so forth. Yeah.
Yeah. I mean, in a way, later in the day, sometimes it's easier in the sense that there is something to meditate on, right? Uh, like there is a specific uh, frustration or you're mad at somebody or just at that moment, you're feeling some sharp emotion that's a result of what happened that day. Sometimes that's that's good to have a to have uh, something in your body to focus on aside from just the breath. As a new or fairly recent Substack convert yourself, what do you mm -hmm. think we've learned over the last sort of 12 months? We've seen people like Matthew Iglesias decide to just leave his position at Vox, which was super prestigious, probably incredibly well paid, and maybe now making even more money there. We've seen Scott Alexander do the same, go from probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest rationalist blogs in the world to start Astral Codex 10. What's your experience been coming at the creator economy from this side? Um, I had actually been on Substack a while, uh, and I only went paid uh, a few months ago. So I built up a pretty substantial email list of people who are getting it for free. And so now I'm in the process of doing, you know, uh, you know, certain amount of paid content, some free content, and you try to convert people from the free list to the paid list. That's a basic um, strategy. And I'm finding it, uh, you know, reasonably gratifying. Uh, I, I, it's not, it, it, it hasn't made me uh, wealthy beyond my wildest dreams by any means. I don't, you know, I don't have the optimal uh, kind of stick for it. You know, I mean, it's kind of like building up a big following on Twitter. You're best off uh, if you can like make like kind of incendiary arguments and get a bunch of people mad and make a bunch of other people happy. Matt, by the way, Matt Iglesias uh, is, is an interesting kind of exception to that. I mean, he does make some people angry, but he consistently puts out pretty cerebral, well, well thought out uh, stuff. And he's not especially tribal. He's a pretty mild-mannered dude. I had him on the show, and he seemed like an well, incredibly mild-mannered dude, although his internet persona may be different. I haven't seen enough to be able to comment on that. Well, he will tell you uh, that he has a temper, and he actually does. I know him a little, uh, but but it doesn't come out that often. Um, and he's, he's pretty good at rising above. Uh, so, I don't know. I don't... I think there's going to be a limited number of huge success stories like him, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Tybee. Um, because partly I think people are getting subscriber fatigue. I mean, you know, it's like you can only subscribe to so many newsletters, actually pay for them before you start thinking, wait a second, <laughs> like how much money can I spend on this? Uh, so I don't know. Um, I don't have a clear sense for the landscape in terms of how many people are, are making a huge success of it uh, and and um, how many aren't. Are you uh, going to see more creators paywall their content, hide behind stuff? Because people do this for different reasons. Some people do it. Stephen Crowder is a good example of this. The reason that Stephen Crowder paywalls some of his content is that he doesn't want that to be the trending news story he wants to say things within a, a walled community that he doesn't want seen by the wider world or at least shared to the wider world right. uh, other people want to do it to assist them financially other people want to do it for a whole litany of reasons 
Um, is that the at least no, for that, now? That makes I, I I can see the logic. In fact, I'm doing kind of a version of that myself. I mean, the way I'm so the newsletter is called the Non-Zero Newsletter. The thing, the Apocalypse Aversion Project is something that I think of as being kind of the part that's behind the paywall for the most part. And certainly one thing that's uh, behind the paywall uh, is, you know, I'm I'm kind of trying to put together a conception of a book on the subject of the Apocalypse Aversion Project, whether it be called that or not, I don't know. But when I've uh, when I've most explicitly dealt with that, like, here's a draft of an introduction to the book, or here's the overall argument of the book. I've done that behind the paywall. And, and I do, uh, I do feel more comfortable doing that in front of a uh, smaller and less judgmental audience, right? I mean, these are, you would think if they're paying for my newsletter, these are people who don't hate me. So they're probably not going to just kind of tear into me. And yet uh, they will uh, you know, I ask for uh, constructive feedback and, and they give it in the comment section and that's useful. Sometimes they email me. Um, and so that that is working for me, thinking of this not just as a revenue generation thing, uh, but also as a place where you can cultivate a particular project in an environment that's conducive to that. So you are able to use the paywall as a selection effect to find mm -hmm. a particular group of people who are bought in at a particular level, and then mm -hmm. you're building in public and permitting that particular group of more bought in, probably deeper understanding of your work, uh, that community to then give you feedback on it. Jack Butcher from Visualize Value uh, is doing something incredibly similar, but on the graphics side, he has this mm -hmm. big community, and then other people, he's got a, a huge um, Slack thing where all different people show their work and then they all comment on each other's. So he's almost got this iterative process for the people that are doing what he's doing within his community as well. So I think that's a, that's quite a cool thing that you, that you have going on there. I mean, you see this with uh, locals, locals, which is Dave Rubin's equivalent of Patreon. Uh, some center and center, right. People have kind of taken to that platform because it's like a Facebook. So you, you, you have friends and you can have conversations with other people which means that the creator actually passively creates content just mm. by having a group of followers that all communicate with themselves. So yeah, I think it's a liberating time. It's just interesting to see what's happening, especially someone, um, Scott Alexander and Matt were two examples I thought of because Matt was in such a prestigious position. I thought that would be the sort of person that would maybe never leave. And Scott was in a position that was so... Uh, he was obviously doing his site under a moniker and he was kind of abstracted away from it a little bit and wasn't a public facing guy. And mm -hmm. for him to then turn on a dime, I know the New York Times article had something to do with that, but for him to switch that strategy, I just thought those were two really like, okay, there's something, there's really something to this. Yeah. Well, I think Matt, for one thing, wanted to feel a little more liberated to write what he wanted. Uh, the, um, he was uh, when he was on my show on my uh, the right show. He explained this was uh, a few months ago. He he explained uh, why he left uh, in a way that's more subtle than than how I would characterize it. But I do think at least part of the uh, part of the dynamic was that Vox uh, was getting pretty woke. Uh, 
which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but in some cases maybe made him feel constrained. So, you know, he had signed the uh, so-called Harper's letter, uh, which is kind of an anti anti cancel culture letter. It was mostly conservatives, but some progressives like him and Michelle Goldberg signed it. And he he got into some trouble for that from some uh, from I think a trans Vox staffer who said that because the letter had also been signed by somebody that this person considered anti trans, uh, you know, guilt by association. It was an issue. What's that? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, so, and this was before he left Fox. Um, I don't know how much that had to do with it, but, uh, you know, it's certainly a number of people have said, uh, they go to, um, Substack for the freedom. Um, you know, there are various places you can go. You can start a podcast, uh, for the freedom. Uh, and it's true that if you, you know, it, I, I've worked in olden times for, you know, a number of actual publications. And it's true. There's always some kind of constraint. And there always was. I, I mean, it wasn't always like it is now. Uh, but there were always uh, things that, you know, when you thought about it, if you wrote them, they would not be welcome at that publication. You know, um, there, there's no there's no freedom like having your own platform. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, especially Apple are rolling out. You may have seen a paid only internal thing now. So you can pay wall content within the Apple Podcasts app itself. Spotify, if they haven't already rolled out it in beta, will almost certainly be doing it. That's the reason for getting Rogan and the Obamas on and so on and so forth, because they want to build up the listener base so that they can then mm -hmm. say, look, we'll monetize, we'll host through, I think they've got Anchor FM or Radio FM or something, uh, and we'll then be able to let you do audience capture in terms of this. So yeah, I mean, for the people that have things to say and an audience to say it to, it's a it's a good time. But look, although although Spotify, you know, I, I think uh, they got some staff blowback on Rogan, and I think they didn't they even remove some things from the archives or something. They um, didn't transfer across a bunch of episodes, and yeah, okay. then later reinstated most, but it seemed very particular the ones that hadn't been pushed across people that had been cancelled people that ha held views that were contrary to some of the ones so alex jones chris delia michaela peterson sargon of a couple of others but i think some of them were eight years old but i mean an english an english cricketer has just been pulled from the cricket team for two tweets that he sent nine years ago when he was 18 um and yeah, so the, there is no window of time apparently within which you can uh, you can be liberated from that. So yeah, you know, Rogan's old podcasts were just as culpable, I suppose. Yeah, well, fortunately, they didn't have social media when I was eighteen. That's one of the the this, things that this, I absolutely this, adore. I have I a get... very spotty uh, record from uh, <laughs> from that age. There's not many not many witnesses who are talking. I'm happy to say. Bob, thank you very much for coming on. If people want to sign up to the newsletter, check out your stuff, where should they go? Well, they can, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Robert Ryder, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. Uh, there is the non-zero newsletter, both the paid and the unpaid version. I um, My show, The Right Show, is actually part of, uh, it's kind of complicated. Uh, there's two, two uh, 
well, now YouTube channels, originally websites that I started, one called bloggingheads.tv, one called meaningoflife.tv. Uh, all of my podcasts are on one or the other of those, but both of those channels also have uh, other content on them. And they are podcast feeds as well as being um, like YouTube channels. And I think that's all that occurs to me. I uh, I encourage buying my books, of course, uh, or just sending me cash. Just just <laughs> just fly over my house and drop cash. <laughs> Thank you very much for today, mate. Thank you, Chris. This was fun.